Ah. Yep. Let's see if I can. Got it. Well. Okay. Yep. I'm just gonna start recording. Can you pause it? That's a really good question. Let's do this. I'm Kelly, founder of Gautier Search, a specialist data science and AI search firm. And I'm Greg, former chief data scientist at Channel 4 and co-founder of Memrise. Together, we are excited to present The Data Dig, a new podcast for business leaders, hiring managers, and curious minds. In each episode, we'll dig into, dissect, and debate a new topic within the realm of data science to get informed and make new discoveries together. We might even have a few laughs along the way. Okay, here we go. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Greg. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Tell us, what is inspiring you today? You know what, Greg? Human contact is inspiring me today. Mm. And I say that because... I work in an office, not in my home, and have done for the last six or seven months. I'm, I'm kind of the exception to the rule at the moment, and I have been working alone, but recently expanded my, my bubble to include my sister-in-law and her partner, hmm. and uh, they are coming to the office, uh, which is really nice. So we spend a lot of days together, and it's just incredible the amount of energy I feel that I gain from being around other people. I guess that makes me an extrovert, but it's definitely inspiring to have other voices around and other personalities around. So that is definitely keeping me going this week. What about you? What's inspiring you? Well, aside from uh, watching you pretend to take your temperature rectally during our (laughs) warm-up game before the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, it happened. That was supposed to be a secret, but it's out there now. The world world needs to know. The world needs to know, I guess. So what's inspiring me? Um, (laughs) I guess I've been listening to a lot of other podcasts with an ear to their craft rather than just the content. And it was a reminder of how much richer the world is when you're trying to learn how to do something new. Mm. uh, That you see things to learn from wherever you go. So I guess I just, I think I've been getting energy from, um, yeah, from trying to learn to do something that's a bit outside my comfort zone. Yeah. If you're not uncomfortable, you're not learning and growing. That's my motto. Feels like that applies maybe. Or alternatively, you just have a temperature. (laughs) So uh, I think last week we talked about hiring from the uh, perspective of a data science employer. And this week, we're going to focus on job hunting, so hiring from the point of view of the candidate. And I think in practice, um, one can learn a lot from the other person's perspective. The most I ever learned as a candidate was when I got to sit on the hiring side of the table when I was doing an internship at IBM. And I got to watch, the, I got to watch them interview dozens of prospective candidates and then hear about how the decisions were made afterwards. And that helped me more as a candidate than any kind of um, other experience I can imagine. So I think uh, I can imagine and hope that these would be useful to both sides. Totally. And I think it's rare that, you know, someone over the course of their career wouldn't sit in either chair. You know, if you're, you know, slowly going about your business as a candidate and progressing in your career, ultimately, you may end up hiring people someday. So, you know, at some point in your career, you'll be able to see it from both sides. So today, we're going to focus on, I think, people who are at least midway in their career. So rather than people who just come straight out of university, maybe people who've already got a job and they're considering a change. 
I guess if we start with a logical first step, uh, what is the very first step that we need to kick off with? Yeah, well, as is the case with an employer when they're preparing to hire, when you're a person and you're looking for a job, the first step is getting ready for your job search and checking in with yourself and doing some reflecting before embarking on what can be like a pretty emotionally and intellectually and sometimes even physically taxing process. And what advice would you give to someone who's trying to decide whether they should kick it off? I think first you need to spend some time doing a little bit of soul searching and thinking about how committed you are to finding a new job at this particular point in time. And by extension, do you have enough time to look for a new job? If you know, you've know you been comfortable in your job for a number of years, you forget how much time and effort it takes to find a new job when you really commit to it. You know, I often say to candidates that looking for a job can be a full-time job in and of itself. So you have to check in with yourself and make sure that you have the bandwidth to set out and do it properly, I think, because you don't want to do it sort of half-assed and then end up disappointing yourself. Also, asking yourself what your main motivators are. You know, why are you looking for a new job right now? Are they reasons that could be addressed in your current company where you could stay in your role comfortably and maybe move into a new position or perhaps there's an opportunity for promotion or you could tweak your current position in order to satisfy those those itches that are maybe be causing you to look elsewhere? Um, you know, in a lot of cases... Once you go through the job, once you're in the job hunt, you realize how hard it is. Sometimes that just causes you to realize that maybe you're better off where you are. So it's important to spend some time soul searching to figure out, you know, whether you really are ready to embark on the process. Yeah, that sounds right. It takes a lot of time and energy. I suppose the um, the one of the many plus sides is that you, I think it's possible to get promoted faster if you move jobs than if you stay in the same role. That's probably not true everywhere, but it's it's certainly true in bigger companies. So how much time um, how much time should a candidate expect to have to invest? So that's hard to quantify, but I think you could probably determine how much time to invest based on how motivated you are to move. So if you're happy in your job, but you feel like a change is on the horizon, you know, you want to start browsing the market for opportunities, then, you know, maybe change your LinkedIn status to open to work and, you know, engage with a recruiter to find out about maybe, you know, the odd opportunity that sounds really interesting. And then, you know, you might want to pursue one or two applications, which won't take up you know, an exceptionally big amount of time. Um, you could probably navigate that fairly easily, especially since we're all working from home at the moment while still doing well in your in your current role. If, you know, things are not going well at work or there are a lot of changes, maybe your manager left or you're really demotivated and you're really, you know, ready to look for a new job, then I say, you know, double down and, you know, engage with a recruiter, send your CV out to lots of different companies and, you know, be prepared to spend a lot of your evenings preparing for interviews. And, you know, I think it really, you really have to determine it based on, you know, how motivated you are to look for a new job and leave your current job that will be a good gauge of how much time to invest. Okay, that makes sense. So you um, you mentioned recruiters there. And I guess as a recruiter, what do you, you, know, what do you see as the main benefits for candidates um, in, in working with a recruiter? 
Well, I'm obviously biased, but I think that there are some fairly objective, obvious benefits to working with a recruiter. So especially a specialist recruiter um, who has a lot of experience in the, da- in the data science space will be able to advise you on every step of the application process. So actually before that, they'll obviously be able to tell you about opportunities and serve you up opportunities that are very catered and bespoke to your specific experience levels and skill set. And then beyond that, they'll be able to represent you. You know, they're an agent, so they'll be able to do a lot of the grunt work on your behalf. But they can also act as a trusted advisor, so they can help you to rewrite your CV if that's necessary. They can offer salary benchmarking. They can even help you write a cover letter and do other, you know, really helpful tasks like, you know, prepare for interviews and help you to negotiate an offer. You know, it's it's just a really, a really handy relationship to have. Yeah, makes sense. And I guess I think we got to know one another because I was a candidate and um, you were helping me. And I remember you giving me really great feedback on my CV and on the state of the market and thinking, well, that was helpful. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess I- I'm a major proponent of recruiters. It varies from market to market. Like in San Francisco, yeah. it's different. Uh, but in London, it's as far as I can tell, like the main, uh, the primary way to find a job. And actually, I was thinking about it. And I don't think I've had, I don't think I've found a job um, in data science by applying for it directly, you know, going to LinkedIn or sending them my CV. I don't think I've ever got a job like that. And in fact, I was trying to think if I've ever even had an interview, even to the point where I'm like, I'm a really, I'm pretty sure I'm a strong candidate for this job. And yet they haven't replied. None of them, like even 20 applications, like absolutely none. And then at first I didn't, I couldn't make sense of it. And then I thought about uh, what it's like as an employer. And it's just so much easier to hire someone via a recruiter than via random, you know, applications on the website. Uh, for so many reasons, starting with, you know, the applications from the recruiter have been vetted, the recruiter calls you every, you know, few days and nags you to sort of ask if you've actually checked the CV. And so those, those, those end up getting prioritized, at least in my experience, um, whether that's fair or not, that just seems to be in practice what happens. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. I think as with any relationship with an agent, it really depends on the quality of that agent, right? So, you know, sounds like you've had, you know, overwhelmingly positive experiences with recruiters, which is, you know, what I like to hear. Um, But it all depends on the relationship that you fostered with that person and also the quality of the work that they do. You know, at the end of the day, your recruiter is an ambassador for you and is also an ambassador for the employer in that process. So it's their job to make the whole process enjoyable and smoother than it would be otherwise. So the important thing is to align yourself who knows how to do the job well, and it can only serve to benefit you in the long run. Well, that makes sense. I guess um, I would say that I've invested a fair amount of time in trying to build up long-term relationships with recruiters that I decided were knowledgeable and trustworthy and, and listened. Uh, so I suppose I was just trying to think how I did that. Partly it was by being clear that I was trying to create a long-term relationship rather than just um, this would be a one-off thing. And that way everybody's incentivized to act in the best interests of, you know, the relationship rather than just that that one-off transaction. And, you know, one of the things I look for when I'm talking to a recruiter is someone who's willing to 
who's clearly listened to what I am looking for and who's also willing to give me the straight dope. So who is willing to say, well, you've applied for this job, but honestly, I'm not sure it's a good fit for you. Uh, like that's always a yeah. great sign. So you're like, okay, well, if they think that's not a good fit, then hopefully when they say that it is a good fit, given that they've listened to what I'm looking for, they'll probably be right. So yeah. uh, investing in picking the right people and then building relationships is probably pretty key. I think that's it. I think you've nailed it. And I think, you know, the difference between a recruiter that's going to help you, you know, for the next three months or for the next three years is, like you say, recruiters who are willing to say no, you know, recruiters who are willing to tell you when they feel like maybe you're not right for the job that they originally approached you about because they want to build that long lasting relationship as opposed to trying to gain something from that immediate interaction and make it more transactional. A great recruiter will take the long view. They will see the value in that long-term relationship and not try to monetize, you know, one or two very brief conversations. That can happen a lot, unfortunately, and great recruiters know that there's more to it than that. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. So let's say you've you, either you've decided to go it alone or you've enlisted the help of a capable recruiter. What's the next step? So the next step is to identify the right roles. And there are lots of places you can look for jobs being advertised. Obviously, the first kind of protocol for a lot of people is LinkedIn. But it can be tricky to know where to start because are you looking for companies? Are you looking for jobs? You know, where do you kind of start? So I think you know, it's good to have an idea in mind of the type of job title you might be targeting just to give yourself a sense of who's hiring in the market. And then you can apply, you know, a less kind of definitive search. You can start looking at different companies. You can use the companies that are coming up in LinkedIn as a jumping off point for Googling and maybe looking at accelerator or growth lists um, for startups if that's what you're into. Um, You can look on angel.co. AngelList has a really good careers page that you can take a look at. Indeed, which is like an aggregator for different jobs, you know, that are being advertised globally. Um, These are all kind of first ports of call for, for your job search. I would say once you've done a little bit of initial searching and you've identified the right kind of jobs that you might be looking for, it's actually important to not get too hung up on job titles. I think that's an important piece of advice. So we've we've spoken um, in other episodes about the kind of nebulous quality of job titles in this space. So really you want to start, uh, you can just do Google searches for jobs and specific skill sets or, uh, you know, disciplines, and it will start to bring up jobs that will cater more to your skill set than to a specific job title. I think that's, you know, it's important to invest a bit of time in just kind of browsing the internet. And also, thinking about low-hanging fruit. So do you know anyone who's hiring? Do you have a mentor or do you have contacts in your network that you could just reach out to and ask like, hey, do you know anyone who's hiring? Or, you know, even at really the first port of call should be, are there any roles in your current company that you could potentially, you know, start with and see if you could move into? Obviously, they know you. So it's a good, it's a good place to start. But yeah, beyond that, you know, it's 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 looking in the typical places and trying not to be too fixated on job titles. Greg, can you think of any others? Well, I think, you know, that's a pretty excellent list. Um, I would also consider starting with companies whose mission you know you're interested in. Mm. 
And wherever possible, if you are going to go in cold, then uh, try to humanize it. So if you can, you know, find that the CEO or someone senior is giving a talk at a conference and then collar them afterwards, anything to be more than just uh, one more PDF in a big list makes an enormous difference. Absolutely. So once you've identified some of the jobs you want to apply to, before embarking on actually submitting your application, you need to figure out what sort of shape your CV is in. What sort of shape is your CV in, Greg? Um, well, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> unfortunately it gets dusted off fairly often. That's good. Uh, and uh, so um, it's still it's still pretty up to date. I have a couple of versions of it. I have you know one version that emphasizes the startup experience and one version that en- emphasizes the data science experience. I've got I try yeah I've got a short one. I've got a long one if they look like they're going to care about uh, references. Um, yeah, I, I look forward to the day when I can kind of put the CV away and never have to look at it again. <laughs> Well, I don't know if that day will ever come. I mean, it's good. It's really good practice to update your CV on a regular basis because it becomes less of an intimidating task when you do have to update it for a new job application, right? Like where your CV becomes a bit of a an anxiety-inducing document is when you haven't touched it in five years and all of a sudden you've got to like, you know, rewrite it. Anyway, so yes, the the next sort of logical point is updating your CV before you start sending it out. Um, I could quite honestly do a whole episode about this, and I'm sure we will at some point, but I'm just going to touch on a few points briefly. So when you are updating your CV, I just want to say this very clearly. If your CV is longer than three pages, is everyone listening? It's too long. In fact, if it's three pages, it's too long. It's got to be two. You know, I have I have worked with C-level of executives in my career whose CVs are one page. One page. You know, people who have 30 years experience. It's really difficult to to highlight and identify key aspects of a CV when it's longer than three pages. You know, you'll just lose your audience. So you've got to make it concise. You know, two pages, ideal. I mean, if you can make it one page. How long is your CV, Greg? Well, I managed to keep it to one page for many years. I've I've indulged myself in a second page now, but I'm, I'm with you on this. Certainly when you're reading them, there's, there's no one who enjoys reading them. So the more um, you can make it be just the news that, that, that you need, um, the better. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say it, but CVs longer than two or three pages, you're sending a message of self-importance. Like, People should read about me. People should spend time reading about my career as if people have time. So no, keep it to two or th- three pages maximum. If, okay, so I hear, I, I'm, I'm, I'm listening and I can hear all the academics like putting their hands up, but like I have so many publications, like how do I list them? So that's what Google Scholar is for. So put all your publications on Google Scholar and then include a link in your CV or you could have a separate document, which can then be added to the CV submission as a separate document if the role that you're applying to is interested in your research career. So Greg, you said that you've got a couple of different versions of your CV. That's spot on. Everyone should tailor their CV to every job they're applying to. Um, doesn't matter if the jobs look identical on paper, the companies will be different. So it's important that you tailor it every time. Yeah, that makes sense to me because one of the first things we do when we're screening for CVs is match match up against the requirements that we stated. 
and it's it's just it's so hard to screen but uh, at least if you're missing a requirement on your cv that we've said we absolutely need we're like you know what just bin it yeah Exactly. So definitely tailoring every time. I tell candidates to always include a short professional summary at the top of their CV, and I'm talking like one line or two, which just provides like a really brief introduction of who you are and why you're great. And in keeping with that, you know, why you're great, make your CV achievement and impact oriented. A lot of CVs that I review and see are very task oriented. You know, they almost mirror the job description in terms of what, you know, the person has done. They have completed things. They've worked on things. But that's not going to catch the eye of a potential employer. It has to be, you know, serving up reasons why you've excelled in your role, not just done the job. So what's an example of that? So an example of that would be, I'll try and give you both versions. So in a CV, a person might say, I worked on a range of data science projects. Okay, that would be the less desirable way of putting it. It's pretty uninspiring. Well, exactly. I see that all the time. A better way of phrasing that would be, delivered two data science projects, which I managed from end to end and resulted in an increase in revenue by X. Quantify the impact you made in your work if you're able to. If not, add some detail and some language which connotates leadership or even just achievement. You know, you did it. You led it from end to end. You delivered. You know, don't just say you did it. Say that you achieved it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. It makes a big difference to to, to feel as though what they're saying they did mattered. <laughs> um, and in fact, it's uh, it's a good sign if someone is able to articulate why their work matters. Uh, because sometimes, you know, you can actually ask someone, so, you know, what was the impact of that? And if, if they can't give you any kind of answer, it feels like a pretty bad sign for like, okay, is this person going to make sure that their work ha- leads to business value? Like, oh... Yeah, absolutely. Beyond CV writing and the actual content and words, a really important thing to be aware of, which I don't think a lot of people are, is that when you create elaborate formatting to make your CV stand out using programs like LaTeX, that can actually work against you when you're uploading CVs to recruitment platforms. Because recruitment platforms automatically parse information from your CV and formatting can mess with that. So I, there have been many occasions where a client has told me that a CV that I've uploaded on behalf of one of my candidates to their platforms has come out blank. So if you are not getting traction with applications and you have a particularly elaborate CV, that might be uh, that might be a good place to start in terms of rethinking. So keep it simple. You know, it doesn't have to have a lot of bells and whistles. It just has to tell, you know, a great story about why you should be hired. You know, I never even thought of that. That totally makes sense. I wonder if that's been a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. You know, I think it happens more than people think. So Greg, as a hiring manager, what are things that really make a CV stand out to you? Well, Maybe there's an art to reading a CV, but if so, even though I've read hundreds, I still don't feel like I figured it out. And so I don't treat it as a very strong signal. Usually I use it as a reason to uh, to screen someone out because they don't meet the requirements. But really, it's, it's, it's kind of a yes, no. 
um, rather than a, a kind of grade the, the, that I, I get from it. It's basically like, are we going to move them to the next stage? If so, then we kind of ignore it uh, thereafter, rather than being a really strong signal in its own right. I think the only other thing I would say as a hiring manager, and I this is a bugbear of mine, is I try and um, always look at CVs blind because um, because we know that there's so much bias in just knowing even uh, what someone's name is can make a big difference to somehow you know, what you read into the rest of the details. How do you set that up? Like, do you do you get whoever's sending CVs to you to take the name off? Because you can't obviously receive those CVs firsthand if you're going to do that. Yeah, that would be the ideal, would be to ask the recruiter sending them to blind them or um, someone else in the team will do it. Cool. Okay, I think that's a really good tip that a lot of employers might not be aware of. Cool. So imagine now you've updated your CV. It's achievement-oriented. There isn't a lot of fancy formatting. You fired it off to a few companies and great news, you've been offered an interview. But now you have to do an interview (laughs) and inevitably those jitters start to set in. So, you know, you need to start preparing. This is, I think, you know, a pretty classic nerve wracking stage in the process, especially when especially when candidates are balancing multiple processes at once. It can be a source of a lot of anxiety. So my advice to candidates is to just prepare you are making your first impression. And, you know, we all know that the first impression is often the most important one. So, you know, as easy as 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 a candidate may think it is to just talk about themselves and why they're great, it actually requires some thought, you know. Being able to talk about all of your experience in a way that's compelling is not something that a lot of people can do very well off the cuff. Yeah, I'd agree with that. In fact, it's kind of excruciating to, uh, you know, list off a litany of your achievements. To some degree, I had to almost script it. I've had to practice it often with like a friend in a mock interview or something, because to do it off the cuff is really, really hard, as you say. So just like practicing telling your story in a pithy way, I think it's the only way to do it well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pitch, really. You know, you're pitching yourself. You know, it should come naturally to you. And for most people, the best way to come across as natural is to prepare. You know, one of the benefits actually of us all working remotely at the moment is that um, we're doing a lot of our interviews remotely, obviously. So that means that once you've prepared, you can, you know, you can have notes in front of you if you need them. Obviously, you don't want to be balancing too many windows in front of you when you're when you're interviewing. But you know, it does allow you to, to to write notes down that you can refer to. You can have a copy of your CV in front of you as, you know, to help you with recall and just make sure that you're talking about the right things. Anyway, preparing before the first interview, even if it's a casual conversation, 100%, and then preparing at every stage. Now, preparation involves researching the company. So, Every single interview you embark upon should involve reflection on your part on why you're excited about that role and that company. And, you know, your answer, because inevitably a lot of employers will ask that question. Why are you interested in this job? Why do you want to come and work for us? And you you don't want to be caught off guard in that question because it will be a serious strike against you. So research the company. Why are you excited about what they're doing? What do you like about their products or their team? 
all that. You know, and speak with your recruiter if you're working with one. They should be a great resource um, to help you to understand where other candidates have fallen short in the past or, you know, what sort of personality does your interviewer have? What can you expect? There are lots of ways that you can you can arm yourself to be more prepared and less jittery going into the interview. Um, one aspect of interview processes in data science tends to be technical tasks. That's something that most candidates expect. So Greg, I wonder if you could provide a bit, a bit of advice on how to complete technical tasks or approach them. Well, it's hard to give generic advice, but there are a few things that I think could make a big difference. Perhaps the most important is the most boring, um, which is just to spend some time thinking before you start coding. <laughs> um, because it's it's easy in the face of a deadline to feel like, oh my God, I've got to spend every moment typing. In practice, picking the right approach will almost certainly make more difference than you know how many keystrokes you're able to manage. I suppose the other thing to remember is, and we all, we all know that reading code is in some ways a lot more effort than writing it. Writing it's kind of fun. Reading it involves trying to get into the head of the other person. And I don't know, it's just, it's just cognitively difficult. And so if you can spend some time tidying up how you present it, uh, and maybe even just, you know, documenting or describing what it is that you've done in a short summary, it's amazing how much of a difference that makes when I'm reading somebody else's text to be able to say, ah, this is what they did. Okay, here are the sections neatly laid out. I can see. And you sort of feel like, okay, someone who's able to communicate clearly, that is partly, I mean, it's necessary to be able to think clearly in order to be able to communicate clearly. So it's usually a good sign. If I feel like I can understand you well, then probably I'm going to, you know, um, it's just a sign of trust. Uh, oh, and make sure you follow their instructions. A bunch of times I've sort of said, hey, please, you know, send me it in the following way to make it easy for me. And then you get it a different way. And you're like, ah, oh, you know, <laughs> you've made my life slightly harder. And the instructions really weren't that complicated. Like, this isn't a good sign. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's pretty basic, I think. But a lot of people miss that because they get so excited about the task and the data. You know, they forget. It's like a classic exam thing. If you saw potential in someone's code in a technical task, but they weren't very tidy in the way they went about it and there were gaps in it and maybe some typos, would you still consider progressing with them or would you write them off? Um, I, I My immediate urge is to write them off. I try to combat that urge because I'm usually looking for a diverse team and there are going to be some people who are going to be high attention to detail and some people who are going to be quick and full of ideas and some people who are going to be, you know, whatever. So trying to allow for the possibility that they might be strong in other ways and that not everyone is just going to be super anal about, you know, spelling mistakes. I, I try to keep an open mind, but it requires work. Yeah, I bet. Well, I'm sure all your future applicants will appreciate that. Um, I want, I want to just want to say one final note about interviewing, and that's when you're preparing for the latter stages of interviews, when you're engaging with senior executives. I've had, I've come up against this a few times lately with candidates where, um, they maybe haven't done enough of the right research before that interview or haven't approached it in the right way. And I think my advice would be, you know, because it's usually like the final, if not second to final interview, you're meeting with a CEO, you might be really nervous. I think the best thing you can do is to try and forget any gaps in seniority and just think about how what you do can benefit their business or try and view how data science can, can have an impact on their business. 
really put your business hat on. Try and strike the right chord. Don't be too technical. You know, just try and think of how, you know, the work that you're going to be doing will be applied in the context of what they're doing and speak to how that could contribute to the trajectory of the company and future growth. Um, so zoom out a little bit, a little bit is I think what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's so important. I, th- there's lots of times when I've seen candidates who did pretty well on the technical side and then somehow, you know, when they had the non-technical interview, they weren't able to communicate in a non-technical way and they weren't able to think at all outside of the world of the, the, the technical craft about like the application to the business and you know sometimes I'll fight for those people I'll be like all right well maybe they'll learn if we help them develop but sometimes you're just like well you know what if you can't see the bigger picture then um yeah it's it's hard to make a case for that person Absolutely. Yeah. I'm conscious we haven't given much specific advice on the different styles of interviews, like competency-based interviews. There's a ton of resources online for that type of interview scenario, like, you know, the STAR method to answering questions. So just do your homework and some Googling before you go into an interview process and you'll be absolutely fine. Um, yeah. The most helpful thing that I did was to try and come up with a list of all the questions I thought I was going to be, I might be asked. And you can get lists of these or get a friend to ask you or whatever. And then to try and write my own answers to them or and then practice those a little bit or do mock interviews. Because if you're generating the answer for the first time on the fly, it's just never going to be as thoughtful mm-hmm. as if you're like, okay, I've got five different stories. Here's an example of where I did something good with here. Here's an example of where... And then you can kind of... Uh, even if you aren't giving the exact answer you practice, the key thing is you've thought through some examples, some stories you can tell, and then you can kind of use those stories. You've got them in your pocket to kind of deploy uh, in response to particular angles the interview's going. Yeah, absolutely. You can mix and match as is suitable. Um, and all this just goes back to how, you know, time intensive this type of process can be. So I just want to kind of underline that again, because it is, you know, there's a lot of preparation involved and getting a job doesn't happen by accident. So imagine you've put all the effort and time into navigating the interview process. You've done well at every stage, you've aced it, and you've been offered a job. So exciting. So you know, without stating the office, the obvious, this is one of the most critical parts of the process and actually where using a recruiter can prove extremely beneficial. Um, so navigating an offer will be made exponentially easier if you are clear with your expectations from the outset. And a good recruiter will go through that with you, not just at the beginning of a recruitment process, but will revisit that with you at every stage. So when I say expectations, I'm not just talking about salary. I'm talking about, you know, how many how many days are you working? You know, there's a lot of people who are working four days a week now. There's, there, you know, there are countless elements to overall packages that need to be discussed. And you should try and be clear from the outset what your expectations are. So there's a, this reminds me, there's a, a really wonderful book on negotiation called Getting to Yes. And one of the most striking parts of it is where it talks about how there's always so many more factors in a negotiation than just money. And that if you fixate on just like my base salary, make that number be as high as possible, you'll miss out that exactly as you said, there might be nine other things that you care about, whether it's flexibility or four days a week or pension or company culture or other perks or holidays or, or, or whatever. And that, that actually knowing in advance what you want, it's, it's not easy to know what you want, 
But um, being as clear about what you want and kind of ranking those factors makes a huge difference to eventually how happy you are. And then you can sort of trade them off because, you know, money is only one of the important factors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if we're looking at it from a salary perspective, let's just t- talk about, you know, the pay element for a second. It's not uncommon or unreasonable, I don't think, you know, for candidates to ask me or for candidates to state in my initial conversation with them that they're looking for, you know, maybe a 10 to 20% pay increase. If you if you think of that in a vacuum, that's not unreasonable at all when you're moving from one job to another, you know, um, if you're moving from maybe a mid-level data scientist job to a senior data scientist job, you know, maybe even more so. But it's really important to not, like you say, think of that one criteria in a vacuum, especially because salaries range hugely from company to company in this, in this, in, in, in every market, but specifically in this space. So it's really important to understand what stage the company is at. You know, what can they afford financially? A lot of startups aren't able to offer salaries that can compete with the big tech companies or banks, but they're offering equity or they're offering benefits or they're offering flexibility. And, you know, it's important that candidates not be fixated on a specific figure, but take into account everything that they can gain from that company um, that doesn't necessarily translate to that basic salary figure. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I would add two things to the list if you are considering a startup. One is about autonomy, because in practice, you're going to get a lot more responsibility. And and therefore, as a result, opportunities for growth. You'll do more in a few years as a, a, a an early stage uh, employee uh, and have more experiences, more chances to build things and get feedback and get better at them than you might in a decade at a really big company where you've just got a really super specialist role. But the trade-offs are many and obvious, including just that it might just it might be really disorganized and they might not be doing things in a a great way, so you won't have as much mentorship or best practices to learn from. Absolutely, and I think for candidates who are coming coming from maybe a bigger corporate environment as a data scientist and are looking to move into the startup or scale-up space, this can sometimes be tricky because they will have been kind of groomed to expect for progression to come in the form of, you know, a title change or an incremental pay increase. And when you're talking with scale-ups and startups, what you gain from changing roles is less tangible. You know, like you say, it's, you know, opportunities to learn, you know, being a fish out of water, having to wear lots of hats, you know, those things are kind of hard to quantify in an offer. But actually, you know, you stand to gain considerably more in the long run by having those elements um, as part of a new job. So I think it's really important as a job seeker to keep an open mind and ask questions. You know, that's that's the best thing you can do over the course of the interview process. And try, absolutely try not to be fixated on figures because A, like, you know, that's not what it's all about with a lot of companies. And B, like it doesn't necessarily paint you in the greatest light if you're constantly talking about how much you want to get paid. Um, The other thing too, though, I would say to your point is that, you know, the fact that companies have development opportunities and learning opportunities that aren't necessarily associated with pay or, you know, maybe quicker progression opportunities in the company. I've had candidates who've actually asked for those things to be set out in a contract. Like, you know, in six months, you will become a senior data scientist if you hit these targets. Do you think it's fair for a candidate to expect that? Is that unreasonable? I don't know if you've ever come across that before, but it's certainly something I have. I think it's, in, you know, it's 
in some ways useful as an employer to hear that those are the ambitions, the goals, uh, and the things that the candidate cares about. So I'd value that that signal. Probably what I would say is, I think that's a reasonable thing to hope for, if it is, but I wouldn't ever make a promise because it's going to depend on many other factors. What's your approach to negotiation in general? Well, I've thought about this fairly hard because I know that I'm not a very good negotiator. And especially when I'm anxious, I'm my decision making is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and I basically, if, if I don't have a job and I know I need one and someone's offered me a job, I find it incredibly hard to, um, well, to, to, to negotiate, right? I basically, if I, I feel like the desperation is kind of coming off me in waves. And so the, um, the things I've found that make a big difference, um, the biggest one is to try and get multiple offers to land at the same time obviously easier said than done. But what that means is when I decide I'm going, when I decide I'm hunting for a job, I go all out um, and put all of the applications in and try and get them to synchronize so that the offers come in around the same time. Because I know that I'm much better at playing hardball or even just thinking in a kind of more cool and rational manner when I've got a backup plan. So I always try and feel like, okay, if this doesn't work out, there's that, that and the other. And therefore, I can really say, be clear about what it is that I need in order to be able to accept. That makes a huge difference. The other thing is just that um, there's, a, there's a bunch more that one could say about negotiation. And I'm not suggesting that you try and be some, you know, hair slick back Wall Street type about <laughs> this. But Googling for uh, tips about, you know, negotiating as an engineer it might be, it's, it's quite rare that a Google search could um, make you £10,000. But um, I think that one probably could, because I know a lot of um, engineers who, for whatever reason, have either felt shy or didn't even realize they could negotiate. And as a result, they get underpaid um, and it compounds. Uh, so, you know, knowing the market rates and thinking through, through in advance, negotiating over email rather than in person. These are all things that I've tried to do in order to be able to avoid it being like about sort of the adrenaline and the in the moment in person stuff. And I suppose the final thing that uh, I found helps is negotiating via a recruiter that I trust because uh, if I'm I'm able to be fairly clear and cold about what I need with them and then they can pass that on to the employer and you know there's obviously a bit of extra complication because the recruiter has slightly you know misaligned incentives because they ultimately want me to take the job but at the same time it feels like that's worked really well and it also means that you don't end up kind of putting any stress on this relationship with this new employer that you're about to have by playing really hardball and then you know getting their nose a little bit out of joint um, but also yeah so it, it just insulates you from any of those uh, <laughs> emotional complaints yeah, yeah, totally. Having a mediator in the middle definitely re relieves the pressure. Leave the heavy lifting, lifting to us, Greg. But one thing I will say is it's important to strike a balance between being open and like not afraid to talk about compensation and salary and mm -hmm. also like not being, you know, too forthright and forward. You know, your mm -hmm. expectations are your expectations. So, I actually, when I, you know, have initial calls with with candidates, try and get it out of the way. You know, we, we try and talk about it as, as early on as possible because let's be honest, like, you know, how much you earn and what, what you get sort of rewarded with is one of the most important factors of the whole process. So don't be shy about it. Don't raise the question in the first 20 minutes of your first interview, but, 
you know, either use your recruiter or use any opportunity you have to understand what's possible. You know, don't make it a guessing game. Get it out there in the open in a way that's professional. And, you know, it doesn't have to be this like smoke and mirrors, like what's going to happen sort of mystery. It it should be something that everyone can speak openly and professionally about. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I guess I would, I think I'd second that advice to try and have the conversation sooner rather than later. Because sometimes you realise that your expectations and theirs are so far apart for whatever reason that there really isn't a negotiation to be had, that you guys are just seeing this in, in a different way. So you avoid a whole bunch of wasted time. Exactly. That's what I always say to my clients and candidates. You know, I, I don't want to waste anybody's time here. So um, let's just make sure we're aligned on that front. So really important, I think. Yeah, I've got one other tip I'd throw into the mix. I try and avoid ever um, disclosing what salary I'm on currently, because that basically anchors you. I think many companies are implicitly thinking, well, we're not going to give them more than 10 or 20% more than what they're currently on. But they might know that they would have been willing to go higher because they have more budget, but they feel like they don't have to. And so there's an information asymmetry if you reveal how much money um, you're already earning. And it's, it can be a bit awkward to try and dodge the question, but, you know, with a bit of practice, you get the hang of it. And then at that, at that point, it's, it's a bit fairer. Um, and there's a better chance that you might be able to push for, um, you know, towards the top of what they have allocated in their budget rather than just an increment on what you already were on. Absolutely. It's definitely, there's definitely an art to it. I regularly have candidates who don't want to disclose their current salary for exactly that reason. Usually potential employers don't bat an eyelash about it. So, you know, people shouldn't shouldn't be too wary of, of going down that route. And actually, it can result in the rectification of someone being underpaid in the past, which is often, which is often the motivation, right? Like someone didn't negotiate well in their last job and they found out six months into the job that they're being paid less 10K, 10K less than everyone else in their team. And actually, that happens a lot to women, you know, and they realize it and they get into these, you know, male-dominated teams and... They vow to never let that happen again. And quite right. Yeah. I've got one final hot tip. Uh, so you've got the offer and maybe you're excited about the company. If you can, you still want to do some due diligence as a candidate. And there's lots of ways you can do that. Um, if you'd have friends who work there, Glassdoor, all this kind of thing, fair enough. I think I try and have a conversation with anyone I'm about to offer a job with, a kind of warts and all conversation, just before they finally accept the offer to be like, okay, by the way, this is the full situation at this company. Here are all the things that aren't quite perfect. You know, the data engineering team take a while and, you know, uh, this data set's not in that great shape and we're a bit disorganized about the blah, blah, blah. And that way I'm telling the candidate, this is, this is the straight dope. Um, here, here are the, the bits that we don't advertise, but we want you to know so that when you walk through the door, you feel like you've, um, we've been honest with you uh, and, you're, and you're walking in with open eyes. And in practice, by the time you're at that stage, I've, I've never had someone walk away um, on the basis of that. So it, it, it's a safer approach than it sounds. And if they're not willing to do that, or if you have any doubts as a candidate, my final tip is if you possibly can, try and talk to some of the junior members of the team because for lots of reasons, junior people tend to be much more candid than senior people. The more senior you are, the better you are at being like careful and guarded and close-lipped and, and sharing what you intend to share. And so you may not get a very true picture 
of what life in the trenches is going to be like from the senior people. So if you can talk to some junior people actually in the team, you might discover that the person interviewing you, though they put a good face on it, is actually you know awful to work with or whatever. Absolutely great advice. I was going to say very, something very similar, which is ask questions. Ask questions at every stage. Questions that will truly provide an insight into whether this, a company, this is a company you want to work for. I always remind my candidates that, you know, yes, they are interviewing you, but you are also interviewing them. You know, every stage of the interview is an opportunity for you to see whether this is a company that you would like to work for, you know. And let's be honest, like the data science space is, is a candidate-driven market. You know, there's huge demand for great data scientists. And great data scientists want to go and work for companies that will be great to work for. Ask all the questions and, um, you know, like you say, go in with your eyes open. And so, Kelly, one final question for you. Uh, it's spring 2021. Uh, uh, what's, the, uh, what's the data science job market like right now? Well, um, it's busy. It's really busy. There are a lot of jobs out there. There are a lot of companies that are hiring. I would say that, you know, as it has been the case for, for a number of years now, data scientists, machine learning engineers, data engineers are in very high demand. You know, I think there was a lull last year for sure. I mean, we, we all know there was certainly in the first half of 2020. There doesn't seem to be any stopping companies now from hiring the data scientists that they need. There's a huge demand. There's been a ton of investment in AI. So um, I would encourage candidates to take the leap. There are actually lots of benefits to changing jobs when you're working remotely. There's an article that I wrote about that, which I can share um, on the podcast website. But um, the market is good. If you're thinking of, of starting to look for a new role, um, there's no time like the present. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for talking us through the process all the way from just thinking about it to um, accepting <laughs> the offer. And um, I feel like we covered a lot of ground. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Greg. It's been a real pleasure as always. We hope you enjoyed our chat today. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, make sure to leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe. As always, we'd like to say a very special thanks to Misha Frankel-Duval for producing our podcast and bringing today's episode to life. Join us again in two weeks' time when we dig into, dissect, and debate a different area of the ever-changing data science landscape. Bye for now.